0: Good morning. good morning. Wow. I didn't think about how special this would be. It is good to see your faces. It's hard to preach to the mask situation. And I know not everyone's totally comfortable. There's grace for all. We're just glad you're here, you're home, whatever, whatever's going on. But uh, it's good to feel like we're turning a corner in some way. My name's Thomas. Uh, I'm one of your pastors here at Parkview. And uh, it's my joy to normally uh, be part of our great movement of more worship to Jesus by helping community group leaders and teaching classes and that sort of thing around the church. Uh, And occasionally I get to come up here and preach God's word to you. Um, So we have our great saying here in Parkview, bring your Bible to church. If you got it, Uh, if you'd like to scroll to the passage, you could do that. If you'd like to flip, uh, do that. We're going to be in Romans 12. You can meet me in Romans 12 verses 14 through 21. And we're continuing today our series through uh, just sort of in the wake of the resurrection of Christ that we celebrated on Easter. We're continuing each week, uh, considering a different issue in our day and age, uh, to consider what does it mean that Jesus has raised from the dead? Uh, What significance does it have for us today? Is it just sort of a nice theological fact that we sort of get it down off the shelf once a year? Ah, this is nice. Look at it put it back up on the shelf and sort of forget about it until next year? No, uh, it's much more than that. Uh, And today, I want to talk about justice. Justice, uh, a very small topic of the day, right? (laughs) No, uh, it's huge. And I can't say everything that needs to be said, possibly, uh, today. Uh, But I've been thinking about this, um, that when we study uh, movements of justice, when justice has been established and sought throughout history, uh, whether it's in recent days or, or in the ancient past, um, it always seems like it's profitable to think about these things kind of at two levels. On the one hand, you think about the the policies that were that were sought, the actions that were taken, sort of the timeline of events. Uh, so-and-so did this and it had an impact here. So-and-so stood up and delivered this speech or whatever it happened to be. Uh, we sort of have history books that tell us about things like that. And then there's another level. There's the level of personalities. The people, the leaders, uh, the people on the ground who are, who are doing heroic and courageous things. What kind of character produced these movements? What enabled them to suffer well without retaliating, to fight persecution, to fight oppression without becoming themselves oppressors? And that, for that, we have things like biographies and autobiographies where we learn the kind of character that can produce justice in the world. Because underneath every movement of justice, underneath, within everything in a movement of justice, is people of peace. People who produce peace. People of justice that produce peace. And that's what this passage today is about. Romans 12, 14 through 21. How can we be those kinds of people? Uh, The kinds of people that are undergirding a movement of justice, a love for justice, a society of justice and peace. So... Let's learn that today from Romans 12. Let me read this to you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the, the word of the Lord. It's good for us, and it can train us for righteousness today, to be the kind of people that God made us to be. And I want you to hear this specifically from this passage today. We must become people of peace by trusting the God of justice. You must become people of peace by trusting the God of justice. This passage teaches us, first of all, God's goal for peace. And second of all, two things that we must do to live as people of peace in the world. That's how we will become people of peace. But first, if any of this will happen, we must ask the Lord to do it. So let's do that. If if you're willing, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the God of justice and you are the God who makes peace. You are the God who loves us. We pray that you would come and teach us the way of Jesus. We pray that you would show us the way of Jesus. Lord, it is so unnatural for us. It is so strange to us. Even just as I read those words, I go, really? Is it possible? But it is, Lord. Um, And so we need you to come and be our teacher. We need you to be our example. We need you to be our guide. We need you to be so many things to us. But most of all, we need you to come and convince our hearts that what you're saying here is true, it's profitable, and that it's possible. (laughs) Lord, make us this kind of people. Do it. We confess by your spirit we need help. Help us to understand your word, believe it, and apply it to our hearts deeply to become the kind of people that you want us to be today we pray amen wonderful well first this passage teaches us uh, God's vision for peace God's vision for human relationships especially in terms of conflict so let's look back at the Bible together here and I'll point to verses 15 and 16 uh, and a few more as we go we're going to be in the Bible a lot in this passage so keep it out it says rejoice with those who rejoice Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You hear that word peaceably, peace. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We see this idea of peace really explicitly shown there in verse 18, but it's clear that what the Apostle Paul, who wrote this this, uh, letter, has in mind has to do with equations where there's conflict, Right? Someone's been hurt by someone else, there's been an offense, there's been, uh, there's been an injury, so to speak. Maybe physically, maybe who knows what, but uh, one party, one person has been hurt by another. And so the question is, what, how do you mend this? What, what is God's ultimate goal for what should happen in the inevitable times when we feel hurt, when someone else feels hurt, how do we counsel them? What, what is God looking for uh, in those uh, occasions? When it's us who have been hurt, how should we respond? What should we be looking for, aiming for at the end of this interaction? Are we just hoping for kind of a ceasefire? Where we just, we agree to sort of not hate each other anymore? Just sort of an end of open hostility? Uh, Or is it that we become best friends at the end of it? That we're totally great, everything's hunky-dory? Maybe even this, you know, hearing this passage and me speak it and hearing just the beginning of this and what should we be aiming for? What kind of reconciliation are we supposed to have in mind? Maybe a spe- specific relationship, a specific instance is immediately brought to mind by the Spirit and you're feeling like, oh, what, what should I be going for? What would success look like at the end of this? While this passage is kind of nonspecific in the resulting relationship that comes, It's very specific about the heart of those who are injured. It says clearly, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. Peace is what we have in mind. Is it just a ceasefire? No. Because if you continue on, you start reading the rest of this passage, and like I just read to you, it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. Thirsty, give water. Bless, live in harmony with one with one another this is not just talking about sort of life together in the church and and people who all believe the same thing you with the people sitting next to you in your seats right now uh, consider this bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them rejoice with those who rejoice there's a reason that those two come right after each other because uh, we are meant to rejoice with those who rejoice uh, Do not be overcome. Uh, What is most desperately needed in the world is for us to somehow absorb injustice without retaliating. And that's what we have here in verses, well, if we look at verses nine through 13, sorry, I got a little mixed up here. Uh, It says, let love be genuine, abhor what's evil, hold fast to what is good. And we have all these things. And in fact, our brother uh, Wade, just a few weeks ago, talked about the kind of culture that's created within the church by verses nine through 13 in particular. And then if you go down to chapter 13 and you glance down there, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Um, And it talks about the ways that God has made sort of civil systems that will carry out his justice in reality, you know? Lawsuits and the police and things like that, you know? But in between, it's not within the church and it's not in the law court. It's something else. It's the character of people who are able to absorb punishment not from just sort of intramural debates, but from people who are actually persecuting you. Actually, so when we experience abuse and injustice, our our job is to absorb injustice, but it's also to hand them over to God's earthly mechanism of justice by filing lawsuits and calling the police and those kinds of things. But this passage is talking about something unique. Look at the first and last sentences of the section. First of all, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And lastly, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is this not what the world most desperately needs? Would this not, if we were to take it seriously, make us just a beacon of incredible hope for the world? The Bible's vision for human relationships is unlike anything that any of us could have ever imagined or made up out of our heads or pursued on our own. Look at this. Look at verse 15. I'll take you back there again. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep it's talking about our persecutors. Rejoice with them. Weep with them. And it's not as if you might read that and go, okay, so we have to do rejoicing and weeping. Those are the two emotions that we have to do with persecutors. End of list. No, obviously rejoicing way over here on sort of the positive end of the spectrum, way over here on the negative end, do weeping with them. And obviously everything in between. Christians should be marked by radical sympathy for their persecutors. Woof. We expect, don't you expect that remark to only apply to sort of fellow Christians? You, you've, maybe you've heard that one, and you've heard it sort of plucked out of its context and said, hey, what, here's what church should look like. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Great. Except the verse right before it makes it clear that it's talking about people who are hurting you. Now, I don't know about you, but often when I feel hurt by someone, my instinct, first of all, first thing I do when I feel hurt, is to pretend like I'm not hurt. I pretend like, nope, I'm not hurt, I don't care, you didn't really hurt me, I'm fine. But I can only fool myself for a little bit. Um, And for me, the first indication that I need to admit that I have been hurt and either go to that person and deal with it, or somehow sort of deal with it within my own heart, is that I, I, I find myself it harder and harder to feel happy about the things that make them happy and sad about the things that make them sad. I am scrolling through social media and I see an update, wow, some good news for them. And I don't feel joyful. If I'm totally honest, I feel a little bit like things are going well for them after they did that to me. Now I might not, I, none of that happens literally in my head and in my heart, but it happens, right? It's, it's only natural when I feel hurt by someone, my first instinct is to protect, to withdraw myself, and, and to stop caring about what they care about and to stop feeling happy about the things that make them happy, to, to not want to congratulate them, to not want things to go all that well for them, even to feel sad when things, not to feel sad when things go bad for them. Might even be tempted to do just the opposite of what this passage is saying, to rejoice at their weeping and to weep at their rejoicing. God, help us. God, help me. I don't know about you. That is not an option for us who trust Jesus. Parkview, is there anyone that you find you just can't rejoice with? Because they've hurt you. Even from afar, even just seeing them walking around, seeing them on social media, you can't really find yourself letting yourself be happy for the things that are happy. And of course this isn't to say there's no boundaries, let yourself be manipulated, let yourself be a doormat. But are we aiming at peace? Is that our deepest longing? It's clearly, this vision of peace is not like we might typically think of peace, not just the absence of war, not just the absence of open conflict, it's a move away from exclusion of the person who has hurt me and toward embrace in the heart. If possible, so far as it depends on you, this passage says in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. Of course, there will be times when it's impossible. I would urge you not to instantly give yourself an out in your mind right now. <laughs> if possible, have we done everything that we possibly can? Have we exhausted every reasonable attempt to reconcile with those who have hurt us? That's the question we should be asking. And we aim for this vision of, this, this vision of reconciliation. This is what it means to pursue peace, the first thing we must pursue peace. That we would hope, that we would pray, that there would be no one in our city or even in our world that we don't really want to run into at the produce section. That we've done everything we can to make that not awkward, to make it not uncomfortable, that my heart can't go there. No, no, no. Not just a half-hearted compromise, not just a ceasefire, not just, okay. I'll stop lobbing insults at you in my heart or with whatever. That we'd pursue peace, even when it's emotionally costly. Even when there are boundaries that do need to be put up, right? In our hearts we would pursue peace. That's what God's vision is. Now how do we do it? Now there are two things that the passage itself says, uh, that we would become people of peace by trusting the God of justice. How do we do that? Well we pursue peace, but that's generic. Thomas, give us some more. What do you mean? Okay, two things. First of all we must reject revenge and second of all, we must bleed blessing. Reject revenge and bleed blessing. First, we must reject revenge. We see this especially in verses 17 and 19. It says, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 19 says, Never avenge yourselves. These are pretty straightforward and simple commands, aren't they? Never. Never avenge yourselves. Repay no one evil for evil. We must reject revenge. Revenge is not a category for a Christian. There, while there is nothing more natural and nothing more reflexive than when I'm hit to immediately strike back, Nothing more reflexive in my heart, I don't know about you, than to reflect my opponent's blow right back at them. Our deepest impulse, haven't you found, in your heart is to take justice into your own hands and to do the opposite of what this says. It says, vengeance is mine. And instead of letting those words stay in God's mouth, we take them and we put them on ours. Vengeance is mine mine but this passage unequivocally says that revenge simply is unchristian revenge is sin it offends a holy and just god a god of justice is offended by our attempts to take justice out of his hands out of his mouth and and into our hands enforcing sort of a strange temporary vigilante justice that doesn't actually accomplish anything except for satisfying our sense of needing to establish things the way that we think they ought to be like i said there's there's nothing more natural when you think of revenge you, i mean does it I, I don't think that i don't know about you but what comes to mind is not necessarily sort of our nice modern clean world where we do we have a high degree of justice especially if you look back historically things are you know especially in america in these days compared to all past generations and and when there's been different ways that justice has been enfor- enforced things are good but maybe you think of the jungle you think of somewhere where People are doing bad things, and they, this tribe comes over, they do this, the other ones come, and they, it just gets worse and worse and worse until it's just all-out warfare. But the impulse to avenge ourselves, the Bible teaches, is not unique to some other time or place. It's unique to the human heart. In fact, the Bible tells us a particular genealogy of this particular sin. In Genesis 4, 23 through 24, if you want to flip there really quick, right at the front of your Bible, probably like page three, um, I didn't get it on the slide, so sorry about that, but in Genesis 4, 23 through 24, we have this strange occasion where we, we see God creating the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and one of their, I think it would be their grandsons, after Cain turns on his, uh, their first son, one of his sons is named Lamech, and he said to his wives, um, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. Listen to what I say. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamex is 77-fold. There is a genealogy of sin that is built into our hearts. It's not just that we want justice. We want to make people pay. And maybe this sounds too abstract, but... Let me take, make it practical. When you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off, what do you want? <laughs> if, if you're honest, in your heart of hearts, and if, and if I am too, my honking on the horn, it has something to do with letting them know I'm there. But also has something to do with teaching them a lesson. Okay? When a colleague in your meeting makes that same condescending remark about your work, what do you want to do? when that family member brings up that issue, that political issue that you know, they know will get under your skin. When your spouse walks by the dirty dishes and lets out that low sigh, you know exactly what that means. When one of your kids talks back to you right in your face, what do you want? What happens in your soul? Where, where do you go spiritually? When you have been insulted, offended, hurt, wronged, slighted, condescended to, isn't your first move, your first knee-jerk reaction to be, I will, vengeance is mine, I will repay? You might not, when that person cuts you off, you might not immediately rear-end them or wave a gun at them or do something crazy like that, but you might just tailgate them for the next mile, right? To teach them a lesson. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. When that colleague makes that same condescending remark, you might not challenge them to a fight, but you might respond with that little passive-aggressive question about their research or about what they were doing this morning or whatever it it might be, that basically does the same thing. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. The family member brings up that issue, that contentious, divisive issue that they know it's going to start an argument, they know it will get on your skin, You might not instantly cut them off and say, you're out of the family, I'm never talking to you ever again, but you might turn to your spouse with that knowing look, they're not really one of us. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. When your wife walks by the dirty dishes and lets out that low sign, you know exactly what it means. You, You might spend the next 20 minutes litigating why you're right and why they are wrong and retracting yourself emotionally and saying, I, I will. This, this is not going on in your head, I don't think, but it's going on in your heart. You're making them pay. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. When one of your kids talks back to you, you will have to do the hard, difficult, challenging character work in your heart to make sure that your responsive discipline has nothing to do with your feelings of frustration and anger. Because, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Now, I know some of these situations, don't they sound trivial? Doesn't that sound silly? First world problems of justice? They cut me off. They did, But before we hurt our opponents with our hands, we practice hurting them in our hearts. And by the way, I think it just has to be said, I don't know which side of the aisle you're on, but if you listen to an hour of you know, talk show radio, political commentary every day, they are not going to teach you this. They're going to teach you the opposite of it. Because this system thrives on division. It thrives on they're doing this, they're doing that. You should be mad at them. How are we going to get them back? How are we going to pay them back for what they're doing over there? And and by the way, one hour a week of Bible reading, one hour a week come to church, and then 10 hours a week of listening to that stuff, which one do you think is going to be more formative for you? We need God's Word to instruct us. Let's listen to it. I mean, listen. You ever have arguments in the shower with yourself? with the people, they said that thing, and you just, you spent, you find time in your day as you're falling asleep, or as you're waking up in the morning, as you're taking a shower, whatever you're doing, and your mind just suddenly is filled with all the slights that you've suffered. And you start thinking of, ah, oh, I wish I would've said, oops, I wish I would've said this. That would've, got him. Probably the main way that people, that, I don't know about you, but the way that I refuse revenge is by saying to myself, you know what, I'm not going to avenge myself because I'm the bigger person. Hmm, what have I done? I've weaponized my morality so that I can feel better about myself and and make them look smaller in my mind. But I'm doing the exact same thing that Paul is talking about here. It's not peace. It's vigilante justice. We will only become people of peace if we make a, a regular practice of refusing to avenge, even in the smallest ways, even in our hearts, even if it never makes it outside of our brains and outside of our hearts. Even before, even in our hearts, before we ever clench our fists in anger, before revenge is an action of the body, it's an attitude of the heart, both of them are an abomination to a just God. And if God has called us to a vision of peace in human relationships that we saw in point one, not just the end of open hostility, but something much more, much more beautiful then we must first refuse to avenge ourselves. We must refuse the thousand little creative ways, creative ways that we establish this vigilante human justice in our hearts, this little temporary puny justice that doesn't really accomplish anything. How can we do this? How is this possible? In that moment when your soul is stung by your spouse, their lack of care, or your roommate, or blatant discrimination or disrespect, what will actually give our souls the resources that they need to say, no, I will not take justice into my own hands. I will, I will seek reconciliation rather than revenge. Because let's be honest, it takes real spiritual power to reject revenge. It is not, it's not nothing. It's, and if you've lived long enough on this earth, you know You won't be able to do it by just sort of sitting there and deciding and just convincing yourselves, I'm going to be better. I'm going to do better. I I will. How will we pay the bill in our hearts that justice demands when we have been truly hurt? The passage tells us in verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written paul says and he's quoting the old testament here vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord a croatian theologian named miroslav wolf um, grew up in a really you know war-torn yugoslavia and um, serbs and the croats going at each other and muslims and it was just a huge mess and he wrote a book uh, essentially reflecting on that experience and and what it meant to be people who establish justice in the world And this is what he said about, really about this very passage. He said, The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the refusal to commit violence in the middle of it. Let me say that again. The certainty of God's just judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the refusal to commit violence in the middle of it. The divine system of judgment is not the flip side of the human reign of terror. No. It's a necessarily correlate... To human nonviolence. What's he saying? This might seem paradoxical, but here's what Miroslav, our friend, is saying, and here's what Paul is saying, and what Jesus said much earlier in Matthew 5. Only if you believe in divine vengeance will you be able to avoid and refuse earthly violence in your heart or with your hands. You have to cultivate a heart of belief in God's ultimate. Justice. if you will refuse to take justice into your own hands today. We must confess our limited perspective. We don't know the half of what is going on in the world, but here's what we do know. God knows it. He sees it. He is not okay with it. And he is going to do something about it. There is not a speck of injustice, not a micron, not an atom of Injury that has escaped his gaze. And he is doing something about it. How might you do this? You might might think about the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Praying that God, God, show me my limited perspective on this. Show me the things, I can't even know all that has gone wrong. But show me that, let your will be done. I hand over justice to you. Your will be done. On Earth, just as it is in heaven, where justice reigns and will reign once and for all, establish this vision of peace by re, uh, by refusing revenge. But that's not it. We must refuse revenge. But refusing revenge, where does that get us? It gets us kind of halfway there. Uh, we've we've stopped open combat. You know, we've stopped reflecting anger and hostility. Well, we've re- we've reached sort of a stalemate by refusing to revenge ourselves, a ceasefire. But peace, as God desires it... And by the way, ceasefires are good. (laughs) They're good. They're not bad. Uh, They're wonderful. But God has something more in store. Peace, as God desires it, is not simply the end of the war. It's somehow restoration. How will we become these people of peace, these people of justice who, who work to establish peace in our hearts and in the world? It's by trusting the God of justice. First, we said by refusing to revenge ourselves. And second of all, by bleeding blessing you see this particular in verses 14 and 20 I'll read them again bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them and verse 20 says if your enemy is hungry feed him if he is thirsty give him something to drink so we must first refuse revenge and we must bleed, blessing that's what we see here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless. That yeah, repetition. He said, "I I know you forgot, even though I just said it. Bless them. Bless, and do not curse them. We must respond in a completely unnatural. It's it's one thing to refuse revenge, and that feels unnatural, doesn't it? It's another thing." To receive persecution, insult, unkindness, condescension, whatever it might be, and respond by bleeding out blessing. If you hurt a Christian, they bleed blessing. Oh my, how how little I understand this. But Christians understand that when someone hurts them, God, first of all, God promises justice. For, for every single time that you have been hurt. From the smallest little word of insult to the smallest little passive aggressive comment to the worst thing that's ever happened to you, God promises justice. And that releases us to receive injustice as a special call to suffer for the sake of the one who has done you injustice. Doesn't your heart just immediately want to reject that? Can this really be, I mean, wow. It, 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 it enables you to bleed, to really hurt, to not cover your heart in calluses and say, that didn't really hurt, or to separate yourself from the person who has hurt you and say, I don't care about them anymore, but to actually hurt, to say, I, I'm sad that we can't be together anymore. I'm sad. I wish we were. It, to really hurt, to not reflect evil for evil, but to bleed blessing. What is most satisfying for a Christian in the face of personal sin done against you is to turn it around and become part of God making all things new. What is something good that you could do this week for someone who has hurt you? You could pray for them. Not condescendingly, not angrily, not ironically but honestly and eagerly. Lord, please bring about some way that we could be be back together, that we could be reconciled. Show me a way. Have I done everything that I can, everything that you've called me to do to make this right? Write them a non-ironic note of kindness, of appreciation. You've been on my mind. I'm glad you're in my life. I'm glad God has made you in this way. Here's a hard one. Ready? (laughs) Speak well of them. No one is all bad. There's something that you can affirm in that person. Speak well of them in your mind. Uh, One of the the processes of ongoing forgiveness is that when you remember things, uh, you, you process them all over again, but you process them well. You process them with the kind of heart that we've been talking about. And to others. Speak well of them to others. Refuse to accomplish justice by taking it into your own hands and slandering them in big ways or little, to their face or behind their back. Now, it's hard to resist punishing those who have, who have caused us pain. How much harder is it to bring ourselves to bless those who hurt us? It's impossible. <laughs> it's unexplainable. It's irrational. In fact, it's supernatural. Nothing within this natural world. Would, I mean, look at, at the created order. Look at how animals treat each other. I mean, is this... You've never, no one ever read a science book and discovered this. No one ever, it had to be from God. It had to be. Because it's supernatural, it is possible if we are in touch with the supernatural person. At the, at the center of a Christian's heart is Jesus Christ, who did two incredible things. First of all, and we, we remembered this in Psalm 51, first of all, Jesus said, every sin that's ever been committed It was against other people, but ultimately it was a sin against me. That's what God said in the person of Jesus. And secondly, he said, instead of reflecting that wrong right back at you, instead of storing up anger in my heart so that the second that you step out of line, I squish you, he said, I will die for you. There's something very interesting that happens in the life of Jesus. You remember that in Genesis 4 when, when Lamech says if vengeance is Cain's vengeance is sevenfold Lamech is 77fold and that that is sort of the, the genealogy of sin that we've encountered in our hearts. We don't just want to pay them back one for one. We want to go way beyond that. One of Peter, Jesus' disciples named Peter came to him and said to him, "Lord, how often does my brother sin against me and I should forgive him? As many as seven times?" And Jesus said to him, "I do not say to you seven." but 77 times. And Peter certainly would have known what this meant. And now that we've read Genesis 4, we know what it means too. What's he saying? He's saying, I am undoing in myself the curse of sin that has made us long for blood. On the cross, Jesus experienced the wrath of God for injustice. The cross is the ultimate act of injustice in human history and yet it's the ultimate act of justice in human history because how can we be, become the right kind of people, the people that will be people of peace when we look inside of our own hearts and we see the desire for revenge, the desire to turn back evil right against that same person, the, the scandal within our hearts. How can God forgive us and still be just? How can forgiveness somehow overlooks justice, doesn't it? No. On the cross, Jesus absorbed injustice and he bled the blood of forgiveness and blessing by dying as an innocent for the guilty, you and me. He took injustice into himself. He didn't reflect it. He absorbed it. He let it hurt him. He let it kill him. Because God's vision for his relationship with us is the same as his relationship that he would have with us. Not just peace. Not just a ceasefire between God and man. Not not just that you would come to God and he would sort of frown at you and say, I guess, you know, I'm not mad at you anymore because Jesus died for you. Okay, sit at the table. That is not God's vision of peace with you. He wants you to sit at his table. He wants to make you a son and daughter. He wants to turn your hands that are clenched in anger into hands that hug and embrace. He would call us beloved. He would not just declare a ceasefire on us, but that he would wrap his arms around us in love. That when he looks at us, he would no longer see our mistakes, our sins, all the ways that we have perpetrated injustice rather than absorbing it and ending it, but he would see the perfection of Christ. And he would treat us that way. Isn't that what your soul most longs for? Isn't that what our world most needs? People like that. And if you're wondering, well, well where would this really lead us? Will this really establish justice in the world? Will this really make anything change? Well, Jesus didn't just die. <laughs> in fact, that's what we're, we're getting to this whole time. God did not leave him in the grave God raised Jesus up from the dead, vindicating this understanding, this particular, strange, unnatural, unthinkable vision for justice, that God will make all things new, that if we will suffer in this way, in the way of Jesus, absorbing injustice for his sake, leaving room to the wrath of God so that we might pray that those who have hurt us would be healed, that those who hurt us would have the blood of Jesus cover them too, that it works, It does lead to a new world, it does lead to new things, and it is bringing a new reality into the world. In fact, you, me, we are called to be part of it today. You can play midwife to a new reality that is being birthed into human history and every day until Jesus comes to establish ultimate justice once and for all. It happens when you are hurt and you refuse revenge and you bleed blessing like Jesus did. God is with you in a special way when you suffer voluntarily in order to bless those who persecute you. This is God overcoming evil with good through you. You have a part to play. Maybe today. Maybe right, maybe in the next 10 minutes. Certainly in the next week. Will you be ready to play your part? Let's look to Jesus. Let's Refuse revenge outright and let's cling to the blood of Christ who has covered not only us but we pray would cover our enemies as well will you join me in prayer now that this would happen Heavenly Father thank you thank you for the kindness that you have shown us in Jesus that you have not reflected our injustices back at us an eye for an eye, right back at us, but you have absorbed our injustice into yourself in the person of Jesus. You have bled blessing. You have covered us in forgiveness so that you can turn us into people like your son. Lord, please make us people of peace. Make us people in the world who can be part of what you are doing, making all things new new through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Fill us with that kind of power to be that kind of people. Help us to obey you and help us to be overwhelmed by your gracious love and acceptance for us despite our sin through Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf. Lord, do this for your glory that you would receive much honor through us. That is our deepest longing, we pray. Amen.